Hi, my name is Isabella Johnston, the Intern Whisperer, and today's tip of the week is about diversity and inclusion. I know we talk about it a lot, but honestly, it's really, really important. There are two parts to this term of diversity and inclusion. First, diversity means employing a team of people from all backgrounds representing different races, genders, religions, ages, sexualities, abilities, socioeconomic backgrounds, caregiver status, and so much more. Inclusion means that all of these people, no matter what their background is, feel supported, valued, and included at work. How each company implements these diversity and inclusion efforts will look different based on their size, the industry, and the location. So welcome to The Intern Whisperer. Our show is all about the future of work and innovation. Okay, so welcome to The Intern Whisperer. Our show is all about the future of work and what do we think the forecasts are going to be. And we have the most great thing to give our listeners. We have John Crossman, who is the owner of Crossman & Company. He is coming back on the show. He is a second place winner for 2022 of the most views for video podcasts. A little round of applause for you, John. Yay. Okay. That means that a lot of people enjoyed your show. So um, a little bit about you. I know that you're a businessman and we discussed this on another show, real estate advisor, education and diversity consultant. And I know that's what we're going to be talking about here today, but some of our listeners might be a little new. And since we were picking up some new listeners end of year, um, it'd be good just to do a little refresh about your background. How'd you get started in your career and what is it that you do? You do. Sure. So um, a lot of times people might sort of ask about the why. And I always tell people it really begins with my dad. My dad was a pastor and civil rights leader. And, you know, growing up in a pastor's household, you grew up in a household that there's education is very important. Community involvement is very important. And then you're kind of working class. And so I always tell people I became a devout capitalist at a young age. And so I I really wanted to work hard and be in a field that could pay well for working hard. At the same time, I never really lost that root of wanting to be uh, make an impact and serve my community. Um, so I actually just, you know, I sold Crossman Company back in 2019. Uh, so I don't own that company anymore. And I did that because both my wife and my mom were having some health issues. And I had two middle school uh, age daughters or early high school. And uh, thankfully, these few years later that uh, both my wife and mom are doing better. And I've got one daughter that's a freshman in college and one that's a, a senior in high school, soon to be off to college. And in that time frame, I launched two new companies and one is Crossmark Services, which is my real estate investment company. So last year I bought three shopping centers. And on top of that, I'm working on three different real estate developments. And then I have Crossman Career Builders. Crossman Career Builders is my company where I focus on social impact. And so we have 11 endowed scholarships at seven universities. We um, have, that's where my books on her, and I actually publish my mom's books on that as well. And I do a fair amount of public speaking, and I really like to talk on issues like race, mental health, suicide addiction, uh, stuff that's are challenging topics that try to come from a healthy place to talk about hard topics. Yeah, it does. And I did just see that you were doing a suicide awareness walk just, I think it was last week. Yep, Saturday. Sure. How, how big was the turnout? That is so important and people don't want to talk about it, but it's really vital. 
You know, it's one of those funny things in life because you'll hear people talk about uh, gun violence. It's a very hot topic and you can get people talking about it very quickly. What you don't hear often is that 75, 75% of gun deaths in America are suicide. And so if somebody says to you, gosh, I'm really passionate about ending gun violence, you know, suicide would be the place to invest. You know, there's been all kinds of research that uh, law enforcement has done a good job to increase the safety of cops, you know, whether it's uh, through the best or tr different training, things like that. And yet suicide by cop, uh, of, of cops of themselves has gone way up. And so sometimes the danger is more within them than it could be with, with the bad guy. Um, so the reason why um, I do the suicide walk and really raise awareness year round on the topic is I lost a good friend uh, to suicide and it's such a common thing. I want to help people to have those hard conversations and let them know that there's a lot of resources. There's so many resources. Like if you're listening to this and you lost them to suicide and you're just inside, you don't talk about it. What I'm telling you is you can talk about it to save people and it's going to help you live a better life. You will have a more fulfilling life when you learn to talk about it. And then the other side of it is that if you're someone who's having suicidal thoughts, um, you can talk about that. And there's people that can help you with that as well. The most important thing is whatever you're feeling in that spectrum, you don't have to be alone. And um, I will meet people all the time. I'll see them walking and they have a picture on their chest of a, a young man. And I love to walk up and just say, can you tell me about that person? And I met a, a couple on Saturday and they said, it's our grandson. And uh, I just asked them about him and, and hugged them. And you know that, that's, a, that's, that's a gift I can give to, to help them heal. And other people can ask about my story and then I can, I can tell them as well. So that's what we're trying to do. Mm, that's just, again, such, it's so needed so that we can destigmatize it, take away all of the issues about uh, mental health and just every, everybody has something. Yeah. Statistically, it's supposed to be one in five does not have, um, one in five does not have a disability. No, one in five does have a disability. And I don't think that's true. I actually think it's four out of five really do. It's just that right. we don't talk about it. Right, right. Well, it's um, to your point, it's like trying to make it so it's it's a more comfortable for you to talk about it and share about it and uh, get healthier together. You know, storytelling is such an important thing. If you're trying to help somebody heal, you encourage them to tell and share their story. The only thing I'd say that is you need to share your story with discernment to people who can actually give you context and, and help you process what you're feeling. You know, if you share your story with people that don't know, uh, they may say things that are actually deeply hurtful. You know, like I always talk about like if you're suffering and then you tell someone they're like, well, God won't give you more than you can't handle. Well, that is not something you want to hear when you, your child just died, right? That's not it. Uh, and actually, uh, as a Christian, what I believe is what we're taught is, is to help to feel the feeling of the person that we're with. There, there's a beautiful video, uh, you can look this up, I think there's probably more than one, where a woman is getting her head shaved because she's about to go through chemo, and then the hairdresser shaves their own head. Like that to me is like being very Christ-like. It's saying, you're going through this experience, I'm going to sit and go through it with you. I'm going to experience it with you, right? And so if you're going to cry, I'm going to cry. Just like if you're going to have joy, I'm going to have joy, right? It's meeting the human where they're at, whatever emotion they're feeling and trying to feel that with them again in the hopes to help them heal. Yeah, I totally agree. And I've seen that type of video that you're describing. It's very meaningful and it always, mm -hmm. it doesn't matter. You always see it and it just moves no matter yeah. how many times you've seen it, right? Right, powerful. 
So one of the things that we had talked about uh, that you would bring up and share on this second show was going to be about historic black colleges, because in my company, Employers for Change, we talk a lot about what diversity and inclusion looks like. And it's it's inclusive of race, ethnicity, and all of the standard things that we visually see, but it is also inclusive of people that are usually under the radar. And that can be individuals with disabilities, the internationals, and veterans. I know that you have a very specific niche that you focus on, and I'm going to really look forward to hearing how you have been, I know you've been so supportive because I follow you, and I know what you put out there. Um, historic black colleges. So my first question for you is, what would your biggest piece of advice be to somebody that doesn't know anything about DEI, about how to get started? So I always talk about how I, we seem to live in a culture that thinks I tweet, therefore I am. Like somehow if I write the perfect tweet, that that's somehow uh, virtuous and noble. And uh, people need to know that your social media is not currency. Currency is currency. And so, um, of course, there's a place for doing research and DEI and listening. At some point, um, we need to get defined by what we sacrifice for. Uh, so I often say, um, you know, you, somebody will tell you they love something until you ask them to write a check. And it turns out they just like it. Yeah. Right. So somebody will say, oh, man, I'm a big Gator fan. I bleed orange and blue. All right, well, will you write this check? And would you, would you skip a family vacation and write a check so that this student can attend the University of Florida? Nope, right? So they like it, they don't necessarily love it. And so if, if we're serious about DEI, we're really serious, we're, we're willing to sacrifice for it. It's not admirable in my mind to spout off what other people should do. Like those people should pay more taxes for DEI. That company should do that for DEI, fine. At the end of the day, it's like, what are you and I willing to do to step into this space and make impact? And impact, in my mind, uh, looks like uh, making some sort of sacrifice, making a financial step. So in context to your question, again, these are just John's thoughts for their worth. Um, we sometimes can stretch uh, diversity so, so broad, it can kind of miss kind of like, like maybe the original point. And sometimes what I've said to people is like, please stop adding different levels of diversity because we haven't fixed black yet. Like, you know, um, the black population in the U.S., far more discrimination than any other group. It's not close. Like, and so in, in my head, I'm like, let's, let's fix that one. And then we can start adding things to it because others are different. And race, the color line is a very unique thing in America that, that we're a lot better at, a lot better at, you know, people, try to act like there has been progress. That's insulting, ridiculous. There's been a ton of progress and there's more things we can do. So HBCUs, historically black colleges and universities were formed uh, at the end of the civil war to um, educate the formerly enslaved population. Uh, in the beginning, many of them were about creating teachers and preachers. That's what, that's what they did. Um, and so sometimes people say to me, well, why don't they just tap more into their alumni base? It's like, well, because for a long time, their alumni base was doing noble jobs that were low paying. Uh, when you think of the land grant universities across the country, those started with medical schools and law schools and engineering schools that were creating the highest paying jobs. Meanwhile, black colleges were creating lowest paying jobs. At the same time, um, the black college network is very, very strong. And it's something that's really admirable. 
And so what I always tell people, if you invest in your local HBCU, it's networked to across the country, right? So for example, if, um, if you're based in Miami and you do a scholarship that benefits FAMU, and then you have a job availability in Seattle, um, I think you're more likely to see a Howard grad apply for that job uh, because there's a recognition there. So I'm always trying to think through on any topic, what's the way to like plant, you know, down a spike and pull and create leverage and make the most impact? Like what creates the most impact? And I feel like HBCUs have a really network system that we can create local and national impact on a lot of these topics. Mm -hmm. I was doing some statistic uh, searches on HBCUs, and I was surprised. I, I really didn't know that there was so few. There's only 100 of them in the mm -hmm. country. And that's a significant number so that, you know, for students that are looking to go and be in a really good college, they're excellent, and then be supported by their own community, which is also inclusive of whites that want to attend. Right you know, that would be a really helpful thing to have happen. So I felt like by, you know, us talking about this, you and I, we're going to be able to help raise more awareness about it. And people may be writing those checks, just like you said. <clears throat> For those that can't always write a check, I think that one of the biggest things that they can do is they'll make sure that they're also walking with that person and supporting them and not letting somebody take advantage of them and just truly be a friend and an ally for them. Well, I agree with that. And I would add on top of that is to make sure your companies are recruiting there. Yes. You know, I would never tell somebody to not recruit their alma mater. You know, if you went to University of Florida, University of Miami, FSU, like recruit there, of course, of course. And it's not a but, it's not an or, it's an and, you know, recruit at Bethune-Cookman University and Florida A&M and wherever you are nationally at the HBCU in your area. If you're in North Carolina, North Carolina A&T, North Carolina Central, Duke, North Carolina State, North Carolina, like recruit them all. Just make sure you're broadening the net and, and recruiting at all of those schools is key. And the thing about it is, is that um, even when you're talking to Blacks in America who didn't go to HBCUs, um, I think that overwhelmingly they're aware of the ones that didn't go over the role of the ones that, that, that where they play. And so, for example, 80%, 80% of ju Black judges in America went to an HBCU somewhere along the way. 20% of Black lawyers in America today went to one of six uh, HBCU law schools, which includes Florida A&M, College of Law, downtown Orlando. So when we talk about, uh, if somebody would say they want to talk about Black Lives Matters, they want to talk about civil rights, I don't know how you have that conversation without talking about the importance of FAMU College of Law and other HBCU law schools across America. Mm -hmm. One of the things that I have when I have students, <clears throat> excuse me, that come and work with me um, and when they're black and they're female, I said, let me tell you what the reality of what it looks like for when you're looking for a job. <clears throat> and then I rank, you know, generally how it's going to go, where it's going to be, you know, the, the male population and in that race order. And then the same with the women. And I said, you're going to be on the bottom and we're going to break that. So I said, I'm going to expect a lot out of you so that when you walk in the door anywhere, people are going to pay attention to you. Now, I don't know what your thoughts are about that, but I want them to always feel that they're in a safe place with me. Yeah. That, you know, I'm an ally and, and I'm going to actually ask so much of them to help prepare them to be in that place where they're not going to, they're not going to back down. 
Well, you know, I, I feel for college, it's finding the right school for the right student. Mm -hmm. And sometimes somebody will say to me, well, do we still need HBCUs? And my response is, well, do we still need BYU? Right? Like if you're a Mormon and you grew up in Aventura and you really didn't know a lot of other Mormon families and, and you lived your life kind of quietly, and then you, you go to BYU and you're like, wow, I'm surrounded by fellow Mormons. And I would think that'd be very meaningful to you and help you help define yourself as a person. Um, and so, or if you're, you know, military person, some might say, well, just go to any school that has RTC program. Well, that's not the same as going to a military academy. There's Citadel and all the other places or VMI. It's a different experience, right? Uh, both my daughters went K through 12 in the public school system, and they both chose to go to private Christian universities. And, you know, because they're Christians, they weren't always treated well in their public school systems. And both of them told me they wanted to go to a place for a season in their life to be able to have affirmation on their faith because they, they, it was the opposite in the, in the schools that they were in. So it really depends on the student and where they're at and to be affirmed in that. And then the other thing I want to make sure I just note this because some people confuse this, uh, HBCUs allow anybody to attend. Uh, in fact, there's always been a strong link between HBCUs and white women uh, because uh, when they started uh, Howard University, which is law school, there were white women at law school very early on because they couldn't go to the male law school, but they go to HBCUs. And so sometimes people, I had a woman on Twitter was coming at me about, they discriminate because she, she said historic black college, like they only allow blacks. And I, I had to keep come back at her. I'm like, ma'am, they, they don't reject, anyone can apply. You can go there and be anything. In fact, uh, FAMU's uh, College of Law um, is about 50% black and it's about 25% white, 25% Hispanic. Uh, there are conservative Trump supporting Republicans that go to family college of law. It's, it's diverse, right? It's absolutely diverse. So um, it, it's, to me, it's like, I always like trying to think about what's a solution to a problem. And so when we think about the subject of DEI, how do we find a, how do we find a solution? And for people living in central Florida, if you're a small company and you don't have big financial resources, but you want to have a DEI committee or focus, you don't have to. You absolutely could call the, the Dean Keller at FAMU College of Law and ask them if they could help you and they can provide you with resources for free, right? So there's, and that's true across the country. There's a lot of black colleges that have resources. They can help their community, help companies in their communities who maybe are not big enough to afford to have the resources themselves. That is a really good tip. I'm so glad that you shared that. Um, so for any of our listeners, uh, be sure that you go and check these schools out. We'll make sure that we share a list of these, a link to the list of them in our show notes. So you'll be able to see where they are. Now, you you answered some of my other questions, but um, we'll go to my second one. What should people look for um, to tell a company? Like if I was going to go and talk to a student that is looking to find companies that are really pro-diversity and inclusion. What tips would you tell a student to look for about a company? I usually say, well, you can look at the website. That's one of the most obvious things, right? But that doesn't mean it's a total uh, disclosure as to you know what that leadership looks like or who the people are in the company. There's a great, uh, uh, next, I think it's a Netflix documentary about Abercrombie and Fitch. Oh, and I it saw talks, it. you saw it, yeah. And it was really insightful because, you know, there was, they're kind of like the worst disaster I've ever seen, that kind of stuff where, you know, they obviously had policies and then they changed the policies and then their leadership was still all, all one way. So 
I, I think there's a series of things. And, and I, I, again, you know, I'm a little bit suspect of companies that have work really hard to have a DI mission statement and write tweets. But if you get under the covers, not really doing anything. I'm looking for companies that are really doing stuff and investing. And, and I'll give you an example of a company that's doing stuff uh, is Publix. Uh, I uh, work a lot at, you know, again, at Florida a and I'll go to Tallahassee and help with the real estate club. And Publix comes with me and Publix is helping invest in students at the collegiate level, understand what a real estate career is. And then they're offering internships to those students. And so I'm looking at a company, it's like, it's not just a pretty statement or whatever. And those things do matter at some level. They're doing something proactive. They're, it's part of their ethos and who they are. And so I would, I would look at their board of director. I would look at where they're donating. I would look at those places and who do those companies say is a resource to them? Who's helping them uh, make impact? And I'm just always looking for ones that are um, doing some things that are more tangible beyond just sort of an easy quote or comment. I'll give you another group just just because I, I want to honor them because I think they've done it is the Florida State University Alumni Association uh, under their their leadership there. You know, it wasn't long ago they had alumni association. I was on it um, really before my time, but they were not diverse at all, and they worked really hard to get make sure that their alumni association looks like their student base and is extremely qualified. There was no lowering the bar. It's not like they became diverse and people got on the board that shouldn't be on the board. No, there is really smart. I always used to joke that I was the dumbest, ugliest, poorest guy in the room, which is true because that board is just such exceptional people. But if you look at their board, it, it looks like their university. And so I think companies are really making a big effort there. And listen, to be fair, I, I wouldn't get too judgy on, on, on the other side. Some, some places are easier to be diverse than others. Some others, some industries that have been so white male dominated, you know, they want to get more diverse, uh, but they don't have as many options. And so I, I would have some levels of grace. It doesn't have to be a hard line, but you're looking for tangible steps they're taking uh, to be thoughtful and impactful. Mm -hmm. That's true. And I would also add to it is like, check what um, comments that employees or previous employees have said about working in that company. That's, I think, very insightful. And sometimes you'll see it on social feeds, you know, perhaps where comments come up. Um, you can't dismiss them totally, but you know, there, there, are, there are always hidden ways that you can find out more. And it could be standing in that public's grocery line and you hear somebody mention a comment too. So good or bad. Yeah. Yeah. Fair. Yep. So was there a time when you worked with a colleague that was had a different background and culture than yourself? And how did you make sure to be inclusive of that person? Um, let's see. That's a good question. I think that a big part of it, the history of my life in certain situations is listening and particularly when you're early on in a relationship, trying to listen a lot. Um, my first year in real estate, my, my friends from that time said I didn't really speak for a year. They told me that was a good old days, right? Back when Crossman didn't speak. Um, but I really try to be really intentionally listening. So I'm understanding. And then I think the second thing is, and I think this is true. I tell my daughters, like, no matter where you go in the world, it's really being uh, respectful, leading with respect of other people's cultures, you know, that if somebody's doing something and it seems different, you know, not immediately being um, overly critical of it, but really trying to understand where they're coming from. I was, I was recently in a situation and, and my wife is from Mississippi and she has a very Southern culture hardwiring to her about social interact with people. And 
one of the people we were working, we were interacting with was being a little bit uh, gruff and their former military. And so I was just telling my wife, I'm like, you're talking about two different cultures come into interaction, you know, where my wife is really listening and engaging and talking to everybody and a military person who has a different worldview and sometimes can be a little bit coarse. And so not trying to judge either one, but really trying to listen and understand where that person's coming from. And so I will tell you, honestly, if you were saying, if you were to say to me, John, tell me big picture, um, where have you struggled with people in the workplace? I'll tell you the one group I struggle with the most. You ready? Uh, it's uh, people who have inherited money. Oh, that's the group. Like, like, especially around my career, when I would meet somebody who it was really obvious to me, they came from a wealthy family and they had everything kind of handed to them. I, I instinctively didn't like them. I just didn't like those people. I, I came from working class people. I came from people who worked with their hands and, you know, didn't have anything, didn't inherit anything. And, and I, I just had a hard time relating to them. And, and honestly, I had anger in my heart against them. And it took me a long time. Now I have friends that were raised that way. And I'm very close to, and I'm, I'm thankful that they love me and care about me and I care about them. But that was not natural. I had, I had to overcome that in, in my own, my own woundedness and damaging myself. Mm. That's really significant also, because we can see people when they have either money or they don't have money. And we have a bias towards that because of a fear usually is and that they're going to be using either if they have a lot of money power to, to do something that is not right. And then those that don't have money, it's always about, well, you know, how can we hurt them? You know, and, and there's, there's just this fear that's there in that whole chain of um, relationship. Um, I appreciate that. I, I know that I think that it's fairly common and thank you for sharing it. I think that people will see those that have money as people of privilege and they might be invisible where they're not seen. And I, I think that might be one of the perceptions when Again, if we take time to um, pay attention to a person, not what they look like, but how their their words and their actions, if they match, I think that's a better indica- indicator as to what's going you on. You know, it's funny. I just as an observation, I was thinking about this the other day. I, I don't, in many levels, I don't understand racism or anti-Semitism or anti-whatever-ism. Mm-hmm. And, and the reason why is... I just am so focused on myself and what I can do to impact the world. I don't spend all my time thinking about those people. Like, I just don't understand why would you spend so much time thinking, well, those people are causing these problems. Dude, you don't even know those people. Why do you even care? Like, focus on doing your job and make an impact in your life. Like, focus on what can you do. I used to, there was a gym I used to go to, and the guy next to me, we run at the same time, and he'd run the treadmill, and he would just complain about all these pro athletes making all this money. And I'm like, what, what do you care that they make all this money? It does not impact you at all. Focus on your life, you know, focus on what you can do to help. Not, I, I, I just don't care what LeBron James makes. It doesn't matter to me. It's like, Hey, if he's doing great, taking his family, paying his taxes, good for him. I got to stay in my lane and stay focused on what I'm doing and where I can make an impact and where I can make an impact uh, locally. So um, this wasn't on my list, but I am really curious because you grew up in a Christian household and your father was a pastor. Was your church a nice mix? Because I've always gone to churches where 
I didn't want to go where it was just one or the other type of a denomination. Now I have visited black churches and I, I like the energy that comes from them. Um, but I also tend to, my church is a nice mix. So, you know, there's black, there's white, there's Hispanic and there's Asian. Um, it's pretty much equal on those three with, with us also. Um, I usually work with in children's ministry and I always have diversity around me. They're not they're not all white people. So I look for those things. But in your church, where you guys were growing up with your, your parents, um, what was your breakdown in the church? I would think that it would be. Yeah, well, my, my church, well, my entire experience was, was diverse. And it was diverse in all kinds of ways. When we lived in West Palm Beach, uh, the church was a bit more white, but my school was much more Jewish and and Cuban, right? And so uh, my neighborhood was much more Cuban and, and Jewish. Uh, we lived in another area and it was uh, heavily black and heavily uh, blue collar, right? So um, I had a very much um, diverse experience all the way around. And even when the church churches we were at were predominantly white, you know, my dad was bringing in, you know, President Bronson from Bethune-Cookman and bringing in his concert chorale. So even if there was a scenario where it was more white, my parents made sure it was diverse. Mm -hmm. um, so, so I had a tremendous amount of that uh, growing up. Mm -hmm. It was a good influence there. It sounds like. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, you know, again, it's just sort of story of my life. And I, I will tell you this, that in all the places I've been, and I've had a lot of scenarios in my life where I was the only white person, white person in the room from childhood up till that still happens to me today. Um, there were times in college where I remember being in places and I could tell uh, there were some people that didn't want me there and that was hurtful. But actually what was more hurtful was when I was in places where people act like I didn't exist. And uh, I can remember my, my training partner, uh, who I'm still friend, close friends with today, was black and we would rock across campus and there were you know um, women who would say hello to him and it was like, I wasn't there. It's like, I, I didn't exist. I wasn't a human being. Mm -hmm. And I just remember being like that. That's a terrible thing. I knew them. I knew their names. They knew my name. I mean, we knew each other and they're just a complete failure to acknowledge. That's, that's, that's a hard thing. And so to me, it's like, there's just a level of human dignity uh, to all people that I think is really, really important. And I, and I, I try to do that wherever I go. It's funny with my oldest daughter, because now she's out of the house and living, she said to me, she goes, dad, you are really good at working class people. And I said, yes, yes. I'm like, that's where we come from. And we treat working class people with respect because that's, that's, that's who we are really. It's who we are. And it's important. And not everybody really gets that. Mm -hmm. The side story was for two years, I did not have a car. So I was riding the bus and it was, um, it was really eye opening because a, there's a misperception about people that ride the bus, at least here in Orlando, right? And I would go and talk to people. I said, these are just everyday people. They're just yeah. trying to make a living. And there's, they're not filled with, you know, whatever it is that they were thinking, you know, mentally ill or whatever. There's some of those on there. I'm not going to lie about that. But these were just regular people, just like what you're describing. And that's pretty much how I grew up also. My, my dad and my mom taught us all to work. And if we wanted something, like I wanted 
contacts when I was in high school. My parents said, go get a job. You want them? Go work for them. And it was one of the best things that, of course, parents can do. They sent my brothers and I to go and pick oranges in the um, in Apopka with the migrants. And it was a valuable lesson, too. So all of these things are, are good. It, I think it gives us a healthy balance as to who we are. And they're mm-hmm. really all the same. Well, and here's the other thing too, and I, I from my occupation, um, I've met all kinds of wonderful people and I, I've had the opportunity to work with some extremely wealthy people, far more money than I'll ever think about having. And I've met some who are some of those generous, kind, loving people you ever meet. Um, I've dealt with some very lower income people who are some of the greedy, you know, not nice people, right? I've worked with very wealthy people who were really unhappy and, um, you know, lost children, to drug overdoses and things like that. But, you know, I, tr- I look at all people as having value. And so if you're the CEO, or if you're the security guard, you're the janitor, you're the top salespeople, you all, you all have value. That's just how my, like, that's how that works. And they all have humans and they all have problems. And so sometimes people, people think, well, if I get to this, my life will be so much better. And it's like, yeah, maybe. Uh, sometimes it isn't. And sometimes having less can be a lot more peaceful, right? So I always tell people, like, if you're climbing a corporate ladder, make sure that ladder is up against the right building. You know, you might get the top and be like, this is not the floor I want to be on. So I looked up some statistics and I thought they were really interesting. So one that I think that you'll you'll probably know quite, I think you knew something about all of them, honestly, the divine nine. And it was a significant part of HBCU culture. And they were nine major Greek organizations at black colleges and universities, affectionately called the divine nine. I went, well, that's lovely because I really feel like that's um, something that's inclusive of, of faith and that people could rally around that and just be supportive have you heard of that before the the divine yes. i'm pretty yes. sure you did. i, yeah. I didn't think well, throw anything at you you didn't know <laughs> no no well you know it's always interesting i'm always fascinated with subcultures it's like it's like if you and i got really into sailing right and you would we would quickly be like oh there's you know you know joe down in fort lauderdale he's got a dock there you use right there's subcultures and cultures like so you could get into boating and you could get in sailing you, could, you know like whatever and so when you get into black colleges, then you also get into the black, you know, Greek system, which is a s- subculture and a culture, right? And um, it's on my to-do list. It's like one of those things I, I don't know that I ever get to do with it, but I'd like to. I've really thought about endowing a scholarship through um, one of the gra- black sororities priorities for million real estate education so that I could better leverage their networks to get exposure, right? So to get more applicants. Like, um, my partner, and I have a full ride scholarship at the University of Florida and their master's in real estate program, so long as you went to an HBCU. And sometimes we feel like we don't get enough applicants for it. And so I've thought about tapping, tapping into that. So, yeah, it's just a, it's another another component to that. And uh, people are very passionate. So, yes, that comes up on a lot, a lot of phone calls I'm on. And yeah. I'm very respectful to all the great work that those organizations do. Yeah, that is true. And, um, and to support what you said earlier, another fact, and these were just a number of facts and statistics that just people weren't aware of, HBCUs champion diversity and include Black and non-Black students from various socioeconomic groups nationwide and internationally. And you definitely spoke to that earlier, like, you know, hey, white people can go to those schools too. It's not 
saying that you can't. Um, but I think that most people don't know that. And I think we always have to keep reinforcing the message. Yeah. Well, like I say, it's, um, I'm always about trying to find the right school for the right student. Let me, let me tell you a story. There's a, you know, part of central Florida, uh, it's sort of the Oak Ridge area, which is kind of a, a blue collar working class area, kind of area, some areas I, I was, grew up in. And if there's a young lady there, let's just say that she, her parents were born in Haiti and came to the United States and she was born here and she goes to Oak Ridge and she works hard and she gets a scholarship to Rice University. And everyone would be like, oh, that's so great. She should go to Rice University. Well, does Rice University have a Haitian and a student population there that can you know, help her out? Do her parents know where you know, Haiti is or where Houston is and where Rice is? Do they know how to get there? How is she going to get back and forth? You know, I mean, there's all kinds of things that come up. And so maybe Rice is a good place for her. Um, but maybe the better place is Bethune-Cookman um, because maybe it's better because it's an, it's an hour away and they have more of a Caribbean influence and they have more resources there and they have better mentors there. So some people have a thought process that they, you need to get more kids from uh, marginalized communities and put them in kind of country club schools. Let's get this kid out of this lower income area and, and, and send them to Wake Forest or send them to Princeton. And the answer is like, yeah, yeah. I mean, that could be absolutely for some people it could be. Um, but again, maybe it's, uh, maybe it's uh, an HBCU. I, I had a guy come see me one time and he was kind of arguing with me about HBCUs. And he said, John, isn't there an issue in the black community with, with not enough homes uh, with a father present? And I said, well, do you believe that that's a problem? And he said, well, I do believe that's a problem. I said, so if that is a problem, what is the solution? Would a solution potentially be to send that young person to a university with lots of black male role models, like an HBCU. And he looked at me like, oh, oh, yeah, I get it. I'm like, yeah, you got it, right? So again, let's, let's, talk about, let's talk about problems, what are solutions? You know, some people uh, have a worldview and they'll say, America's awesome and there's no really big problems and it just America's great. You can have that view. Other people are like, America's terrible, I hate it, we need to burn it all to the ground, there's that view. Here's the view I have is, America is awesome, it's a great place, and we have problems, and we can fix them, and we can heal them, right? We can keep working on it to getting, we can keep working on that American dream more and more and more, you know, at the beginning, you know, people don't understand, like, when America was formed, it went from this tiny population to be able to pursue the American dream it expanded to this. That was huge, changed the world. And ever since then, we keep we keep expanding it, right? That's the goal. We're going to keep expanding it, making more and more people be able to live that out and have choice. That's a big deal. So it's a great country. It's doing so many things so well. Let's just keep finding ways to work together and, and improve it. I also add this that you know, one of the quickest ways, if you want to gain power, if you're a person's about power, not about principle, not about helping people but about gaining power. One of the quickest, easy ways to gain power is to blame those people, those people. You have problems and it's those people and they're scary and they're bad and I'm gonna protect you. And those people could be a minority group. It could be a race. You know what scary group could be? Rich people. Oh no, rich people, are, the rich people are so bad. I have, I have to protect you against those people, right? That's Bernie Sanders who I really disagree with by the way. Um, and my whole thing is like, if you live a worldview of there's an enemy and I have to follow this leader and give this leader my money for an enemy, 
I just think that's a terrible way to live. You know, I don't look at other Americans as my enemy. You know, they're not my enemy. If they have a different religious view or they have a political view, that's great. Uh, the, the people who have different religious views, I think, help me to be a better Christian. People who have different political views challenge me to, to look at my own party and question whether I need to, you know, push in and, and challenge them to change what they're saying and they're doing. It's healthy things to do, I agree. right? So, and staying focused on who the enemy really is, it's not my neighbor, I cry out loud, it's find ways to work together and to make things work. People, it's a very internal core thing for humans to be very tribal, my tribe versus your tribe. And one time I was lecturing at um, Valencia and I talked about how I've lectured at 30 different universities and the best students ever met were from Florida A&M, best students ever. And when I got done, the professor said good, thank you to every panelist. And when she looked at me in front of the whole audience, she said, you and your gator bait. No. And she was so enraged. She was a University of Florida grad. And her mind, there, that's Harvard. And I, because I said I was more impressed with FAMU students than UF students. I mean, she was angry. And she didn't know I was a trustee at Valencia at the time. And I didn't, I just tried to reach out to her personally. But I was like, ma'am you know, I'm not saying they're bad. I'm just saying this is my own better experience, but her tribal brain was coming out, right? It was tribal. And, you know, um, when I do, you know, I'm a forest aid guy. I've done a lot of work for UF. Some UF people don't like it. Some FSU people don't like it. It's not that I don't love FSU. I'm always going to love FSU, but I go where I'm wanted and I go where people need my help. Mm -hmm. And I'll go anywhere if I can work and help people. That's what I do. If UF invites me, I'm going because, you know, there are students there need my help and that's where I'll be. Mm -hmm. But it's breaking down that tribal mentality and getting into a humanity mentality, mm -hmm. right? Yep. Well, we're going to take a little break for our sponsor, Transcend Network, and then we'll be back to the show. Transcend Network helps early stage startup founders find product market fit through weekly experiments, receive fundraising support, and build a global founder investor network for ed tech and the future of work technologies. The Intern Whisperer is affiliated with Employers for Change, and we thank Transcend Network for being a sponsor of our show. Now we're back to the second half of our show where we're going to talk about the future of jobs and industries in 2030. So I did some really um, quick statistical information to see what are the populations going to be um, breaking down when we go into 2030 and 2035. And it definitely does look like it's going to be a, a little bit slower, but there will be definitely more Hispanics. They're going to be coming up the ranks to be more equal with uh, the number of whites, but then so is the, the same for Asian and also black families. So we'll see that traditionally those families, uh, black and Hispanic are larger. So they will be able to have more people in the households um, that are being counted. And that means that, you know, usually white and Asian have less kids. Um, so we should see that beginning to get balanced out, but not by 2030 for sure. Um, there's, there's a lot that's going on, but what do you think that forecast would look like in the future, you know, 2030, 2035? How, how do you think that people can, can learn to get Well, it? yeah, I think a couple things. First off, I had a friend tell me a great story and that when he was in middle school and he went to a public school in kind of a rural, rural part of Florida, he walked into the cafeteria at lunchtime and the white kids were here the black kids were here and the Hispanic kids were here. Like, and that's, 
a lot of high school, public schools, you know, were like that. You walk in and like, there's these different sections. And then right after that, um, the internet was created and social media started ramping up. And he said, by the time he was a senior, cafeterias didn't look like that anymore. Mm-mm. Because if a student walks in and they happen to be white, why do they have to sit over here? You know, maybe that student's white loves uh, a certain kind of music that also Hispanic kids, a couple of Hispanic kids like, and they go and they get together and they talk about that. Maybe they're into, you know, Comic-Con, maybe they're into sports, maybe they're whatever. And so all of a sudden that kind of, that kind of, that kind of breaks down a lot further. So when I think about the future of demographics, like I, I think you're going to see a lot more communities defined not by race and ethnicity, but by commonality. That's mm-hmm. it. You know, like you're going to go to a soccer game and it's going to be diverse because there's lots of people like soccer. You're going to go to a concert. You're going to be diverse because lots of people like concerts. And so I just don't think, I, I don't think it's a, as much as a metrics of measuring that it, it has been in the past uh, because people are now free uh, to do what they want. I just recently watched the Netflix film, um, uh, You People or Those People, I can't remember what it was with Eddie I Murphy. I and watching it, yeah. Yeah. And I think that that's a great symbol of it. You know, it's a, it's a Jewish guy and, and a black girl. They have a lot in common. They have a lot in common. And of course, their parents had to work to get over it based on their sort of old world views, which is a you know common thing to happen. But I just think it becomes about what people people have in common as, as, as the biggest thing. Um, it's not something uh, that I'm worried about in any kind of context. I'm more kind of just celebrate just getting people together have things in common. I do think what's interesting is politically, I think both parties need to get a better grip on it. I think the Democratic Party really has whiffed hard uh, with understanding who who their their base is. And clearly, you know, you would have thought not that long ago that Florida would have flipped um, and been a blue state. Texas would have that way. And man, it's gone the exact opposite direction. Um, but does that mean the Republicans have it you know, perfectly right? No, I mean, obviously, I think there's some things they're doing that um, doesn't always connect with their demographic either. So I think that I think politically, uh, because those they're kind of paid to kind of put people in camps, they better stay on it, man, because I don't think there's any guarantees of what group votes what way uh, in the future. And to wrap all that up with a little bow, I spoke um, to the NCAA, NAACP chapter at UCF a year and a half ago. And one thing I told them, I was like, listen, you know, no group um, should assume they has your vote and no group should assume they don't have your vote. If, if, if Democrats think they have your vote guaranteed and Republicans think they'll never get your vote, you have lost all your power. You've lost your power. You need to make sure that both parties are wooing you and competing uh, and talking to you and listening to you to try to make sure that there's there's influence there. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I agree. Do you see any ethical dilemmas that are going to be coming up and, you know, anything in that area that are related, related to jobs? <clears throat> anything ethic related as it relates to jobs? You know, I always get frustrated when I see um, a lack of dealing with the real issue and then being dealt with forced issues. And so, um, uh, so an example that might be, if, if we were to say uh, 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 Black Lives Matter, not the organization, but the concept, 
and saying, what are the issues that are most impacting uh, black life to be, be live less as long as other races and have an honest conversation what that is and then the investment of resources and jobs to those areas as opposed to which one is the sexiest headline that sells the most papers or gets the most clicks and things like that. So I think when I say that, it's like maintain the integrity uh, and the resources where they need to be and not push falsely in one direction. So, so making sure the job creation is where there's impact, not for political gain. Yeah. And because you mentioned resources, I've seen, and I'm sure you've seen this too, the government has just really, our government has rallied around finding uh, funding for apprenticeships. Significant because they're distributing that between schools and nonprofits where it's there to help, you know, raise the bar for def definitely career paths in STEM, but it can also be in those blue collar jobs, but there's still a STEM component in all of those. You cannot be a mechanic without being able to know how to, now you don't just go in under the hood and fix something. You have to go into the computer and fix something. Right. Car, right. right. So it's not that easy anymore that like it was. So I feel like the um, the money that's being put into apprenticeships, that is going to help level some of the field and raise up more um, ethnicities that haven't had that opportunity. Yeah. Well, I would tell you this. I think that two general generalized statements that I think are absolutely true about the future of workforce look like this. Number one, uh, everyone has to be uh, passionate about pursuing and understanding, respecting technology. Technology in our era is changing rapidly and we have to continue to be on top of it and understand it and train it and support it. That's true. The second thing is to never miss the importance of humanity. Uh, that is also true. So there's some things that change and evolve and there's some things that um, don't, never change and evolve. Um, so I always like to quote uh, Napoleon, who said that men will die for the smallest scrap of a ribbon. And what I think he meant by that is that all humans need and desire appreciation. And so it's like uh, a handwritten thank you note is still very, very powerful. You know, when I get a when I get a letter and I can see it's handwritten on the address, and then like that's the first thing I open, right? That that has meaning and value to me because I can tell somebody really wants to some effort to try to appreciate something I've done for them. And so it's, it's both those things. It's, it's a, it's a technology appreciation investment and it's a, it's a never ending process of understanding the proportions of just having compassion and empathy and connectivity as a, as a human being. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I will add this because they don't teach handwriting, cursive handwriting anymore. Right. So if anybody's writing you a cursive handwriting uh, note, just be really amazed at that because it's just something that's not taught. That means some yeah. way to actually go learn that skill. Yeah. Well, and you know, look, I think it's also, they're, they're probably doing that because they know my age and they know that meaningful to me. It doesn't have to be that, but it does have to be a human connection point. You know, for example, uh, when we talked about the very beginning with the suicide prevention, you want to prevent somebody from suicide, hug them. Yeah. Hug yeah. Hugs are, I mean, that's, that's, again, that's a very human uh, experience. I love my great Dane, my dog, Pepper. And one of the things I love about Pepper is Pepper is such a good self-advocate. You know, Pepper knows the difference between going on a walk 
and playing and taking a nap and cuddling and getting pets, you know, like, and, you know, when she, she wants uh, affirmation, you know, she'll cry until you, till you pet her. Right. And, you know, good for her. She's like aware of herself, but you know, a lot of humans through their own trauma and tragedy uh, aren't necessarily aware of that or know how to ask. And that can come out in some very, very bad ways. You know, I, it's always funny. I say funny. It's sad. I, I, I'm, I'm intrigued by people who believe bizarre conspiracy theories and then promote them. And then if you ask them simple questions, like, can you just give me some facts to back that up and they freak out. But when I do that, a lot of times if I keep pulling the thread, um, the most consistent thing I see is they've been through some really horrible trauma. And um, maybe that locking that conspiracy is helping them process what they're dealing with. And I am not minimizing that trauma. What I have compassion for is how to help them realize and deal with that trauma in a way that's healthy so that they can be maybe more fact-based and not kooky conspiracy-based. And I don't mean that disrespectfully. I just mean no, what they're struggling with. I totally, totally get what you're saying for sure. Yeah. Well, we are here wrapping up the show and it's just been always delightful to have a conversation with you. Perhaps one time we'll do it where we're not on the air. We could just go and have lunch or something. Yay, that'd be awesome. Absolutely. Well, thank you for having me and I appreciate all you're doing. And I appreciate that. Thank you. And and my apologies because I listed the wrong company at the beginning, but I have it at the end. Um, what yeah. website, well, tell our listeners, what website would you like them to find you? Uh, the easiest one is the crossmancb.com. So www.crossmancb.com. And uh, um, yeah, and I, I love hearing from folks. And, you know, um, I also love feedback. You know, a lot of times I do different presentations and speeches and different stuff. And I don't always get feedback, but I always love being in conversation. And if somebody has a thought or a comment or thinks there's a better way I could do something or impact, um, I'm happy to hear it. I, I know what you mean on that one also. Well, anyway, I'm including your LinkedIn profile. Thank you for sharing that also over there. And I look forward to seeing what you're up to in the social feeds. It's always uh, doing good work with positive impact. So thank you so much, John, for being here. Thank today. you. It's nice to see you. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you to our video and editing sponsor, Cat5 Studios. We want to thank our production and editing editor, Josue Gonzalez, and our music by Sophie Lloyd. Visit Employers for Change at www.e4c.tech to learn how you can create real diversity and inclusion culture while scaling your people for the future. Thank you for supporting The Intern Whisperer by subscribing to us on Podbean, or you can find our video on our Employers for Change YouTube and Facebook channels, or you can stream from your favorite podcast channel.